Hello, and welcome to Reflections. Uh, this is Rom Gayoso. I am your host. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, thank you so very much for uh, being with me and my guests today. It's an honor and a privilege to have you on board. Uh, so uh, before I get started with the business of the day, uh, I have to cover some ground rules. Everybody's got some rules and regulations before I welcome my friend Martin and then Kai a little bit later. Hi, Martin. Welcome to the show. Rom, thank you so much. I really enjoy being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So uh, let's uh, cover some ground rules. So uh, important thing is we're going to be using the chat boxes or the chat rooms, depending which service you're looking at. We're going to be using them quite a lot. And because we're broadcasting over a variety of different channels, each and every one of them will have slightly different rules regarding the use of chat. But they can be summarized as follows, you know, just uh, uh, be nice, uh, be polite, be courteous. There is uh, only uh, one golden rule here, which is absolutely uh, no hate speech is allowed. So uh, other than that, uh, it's okay. Uh, we can, you know, exchange thoughts and ideas. Uh, but again, uh, no hate speech. Uh, the chat boxes are open. So uh, please come in. Say hi, uh, tell us uh, where you're watching or where you're listening from, because we are also broadcasting via Spotify. So uh, you may be just listening and not watching, or you may be watching, and hopefully you are listening and watching, so we have more fun together. So uh, use the chats to uh, exchange thoughts and ideas and make comments. But if you're going to address a question uh, to one of us, to the guests, uh, I have a special favor to ask of you, please type hashtag ask or hashtag ASK in front of a question. Again, because there are at least three different broadcast services, I have to go through and check the chat box and, or chat room in each one of one of them. And if you have the hashtag ask in front of the question, as I'm scrolling up and down, I can immediately spot, oh, oh, that's a question formatting it. And I can and I pose the question uh, immediately. Now, there are uh, several different ways uh, for you to submit a question. You can certainly, and you're more than welcome, uh, to use the uh, chat box. Uh, if you are using the email, you can certainly send me an email at editor at imcimagazine.com. Or if you prefer to use the talk to text function, you can certainly, and you're more than welcome, to text me at 001 for the United States for Eight zero five four four eight three seven two. Now, uh, privacy rules do apply. So all that I will do is to read your texted question and pose it. I will not be saving your number. You will not be getting any kind of a nonsense uh, promotional um, items or propaganda from me. You have to opt in in order to do that. So it's uh, safe uh, to use uh, the text function as well. So welcoming uh, a bunch of people to the show. Uh, so let's uh, get started. Uh, and the first order of the business is to go through the agenda. So uh, what we're going to be doing today uh, should be a fun talk. Uh, we'll be welcoming to futurists uh, Kai and Martin. They're going to be with us today. And then uh, if we don't cover all your questions during the course of the show or during the interview proper, 
at the very end of the show, I have more time set aside for questions and answers. So there's always opportunity for you to ask more questions or offer comments and suggestions. And uh, by the way, at the end of the show, if you have some you know, last minute burning questions, there's more time for you to ask questions. And when we're done, uh, so the services will, in a couple of hours or a couple of hours after we're done, they will uh, save the recording and upload the recording. And then uh, we can continue our conversation over there. Uh, so the one I use the most is YouTube. If you go to our YouTube channel, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and check us. Uh, over there, you can continue to leave comments and questions. And as soon as I read them, I will get to them and I will make sure to send them to the guests. And therefore, you know, they will continue to answer comments and questions. And of course, you can find the guests on LinkedIn. The LinkedIn profiles are available. After we are done with the uh, Q&A section, then uh, we're going to move uh, to the upcoming event. So I'll give you an idea of, you know, what is to come, uh, what kind of shows, topics. And by the way, please continue to do send your comments and your thoughts and suggestions, uh, what you want to hear about, what you want to talk about, and who you would like to hear from. And I will make sure I will do my best to get the best people uh, to offer thoughts and ideas on those specific topics. So let me get started with a short introduction. Again, welcome to Reflections, and Reflections is the live stream partner of IMCI Magazine. We are an online publication. You can find us online at www.imcimagazine.com. We are a publication in the United States under registry 2769-0008. We are a member of Edelweiss America Media, and our focus is on intelligence, a variety of intelligence topics. So we discuss you know, competitive intelligence, we discuss market intelligence, we you know, go over topics of economic intelligence. And a good part of the magazine, a good chunk of the work, addresses foresight and future studies, and hence uh, uh, the topic of today. Now, our vision is really to bring diverse perspectives and voices to the debate. So what do I mean by that? So people from different parts of the world and from different backgrounds will have different views and perspectives. And that's the beauty of it. We all um, come together and we share thoughts and, share thoughts and ideas and we decide where do we move forward or, what do we, or where do we go from there and what we do together. So a little bit about the topic. So the futurists and the visionaries and the book authors, right? My guests are um, all of the above. So I want to give you a little bit of introduction about the topic of today. So when uh, you think about the times we're going through, and Kai actually calls them you know, interesting times, uh, but the American military coined a specific term to describe it, and it, you perhaps you heard it. It's called VUCA. V-U-C-A, and it stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity, hence the acronym VUCA. And that is a very good description of um, the, our current times and what we are living and what we're going through. So in cases like that, who are you going to call? 
well, we're going to call the futurists, right? So I've been devoting a lot of time in the series to talk to futurists for a variety of reasons. But uh, most importantly, uh, the key issue here is how you deal with anxiety about the future, how we deal with the future. So there's fear about the future. There's an anxiety about the future. So my guests are you know, prominent futurists, people who have been doing this for a while that are members, current members or past board members of one of the futurist associations or the World Future Society or WSFS or AFS or APF. So there are a few different futurist societies. So my guests uh, have been board members. They teach foresight in futurisms or taught at a, a variety of schools. So my guests today at a variety of um, European schools. So they have a lot to offer. In the case of Martin, he's also an author of articles and, and a book. He has a new book out. We're going to be talking a little bit about his book as well. And he writes, or both of them write for the magazine. This is uh, the picture of the current issue. Uh, more wonderful stuff in there. So Zen Goff from Singapore uh, talking about the fabulation, which is how we imagine the future. We have Alexander Christer from Italy talking about the crossover between military intelligence and competitive intelligence. Again, there are several interesting topics around intelligence and futures and, uh, and foresight. So uh, having said that, I think this is uh, good enough for uh, in terms of an introduction. And so again, uh, someone is talking. I want to uh, welcome um, all of our friends who are here. Uh, hello from Phoenix. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Hello from Mexico. Viva Mexico. Hello from Germany. Thank you. Uh, hello, Dr. Aziaslam. Hello, my friend. Uh, good to have you here. Uh, good contingent from uh, Intel. Several of my colleagues are here. Just want to, uh, to welcome you um, all to the show. So uh, once more, uh, thank you, Martin, for taking the time to you know, be with us today and share your thoughts and your ideas uh, and your perspectives, your thoughts about the future. And uh, you're a book author. Uh, you have a new book out, right? So small in small data, big, uh, big disruptions. I, wanna, I will be talking a little bit about your book today. Uh, so uh, first of all, I want to, um, again, welcome you. Uh, I would like you to say a few words about yourself. And I know we've been teaching quite a lot, writing, busy writing, busy presenting, uh, but you're currently uh, at Business Finland. So do you mind just uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and what kind of work you do at Business Finland? What is this all about? Rom, again, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I am part of Business Finland. I am actually part of the Global Foresight team. So we have people all over the globe to extract information, how the world might be changing in the future. And we will use this information at Business Finland to develop a strategy. And the overarching goal of the organization is to help the Finnish economy, startup companies, incumbent companies uh, to make sense of the future and develop better strategies. Perhaps a little bit about the background, because I think that's relevant in the context of what you mentioned about VUCA and how I ended up at Foresight. I actually started in the world of statistics and quantitative uh, market research. I worked with GFK in Germany, which is now part of Ipsos. 
on uh, advertising methodology and how to improve it and work with a lot of companies on uh, statistical ana analyses. Um, then I joined SRI International and spent two decades on their campus. And this is where I got exposed to and moved into the world of foresight. I ran a foresight program, global foresight program for over a decade, but I also participated in dozens of scenario planning projects, opportunity discovery, so everything that is related to a more qualitative approach. So I've seen both worlds. Uh, I ended up in the qualitative one, but it is not that the quantitative one is uh, a secret or mystery to me. Great. Uh, so uh, actually, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your teaching. You, I think you just finished a program at the Norwegian Business School, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? What was your topic? Uh, what are your thoughts? So in the end, uh, currently, it is about foresight, giving an understanding. It's about the book, Small Data, Big Disruptions, how to spot signals of change and manage uncertainty. And I think those are the two big topics. How do you actually look at something that is brand new, something you might not even understand, something that could transform and uh, change the marketplace in the future? So how do you extract that information? And uh, what goes with it is managing uncertainty. And I am aware that some people say you can't really manage it, and that might be true. But you can develop a better understanding what the areas are that are uncertain. And once you become aware of it, you obviously develop a better understanding how to look for the changes, how to potentially address issues, how to develop strategies that might be more reactive or more robust given the changes that might occur. Again, we're not predicting the future. It's about possibilities that might occur. Wonderful. I'm glad you're, you know, you're always uh, so graciously sharing our thoughts and ideas and, and teaching and presenting and going to schools and business schools. I think uh, this is important uh, for all of us that work in the field in terms of uh, futurism and foresight, because I think we need to share more. Uh, and right now, I feel there's a hunger for... Uh, for foresight or for better foresight or the kind of work that uh, that you do and, and some of us do as well. Now, uh, I wanted to uh, change a little bit. So first of all, uh, congratulations on your book. Where can I get the book? I have to put a uh, link down here to say, where can we find the book? Well, you know, it's obviously Amazon because you can buy everything on Amazon, but it's also a wide list of other um, book sellers and also in Europe. So. Uh, we have it on Audible and uh, other sources. So I will provide you with a list of um, all the links that lead you to the book. Thank you so much for asking. Yeah. Okay. Well, well. so people can actually listen to the book as opposed to just uh, uh, reading. So they can read, they can listen, they can uh, do a we lot just, of things. We just talked about it. People don't want to listen any, to read anymore. So you can listen to it or you can watch, obviously, the show. Hey, whichever way they prefer, it's absolutely fine. Now, uh, let's talk a, a little bit about the book, right? So everybody's talking about big data. So they're focusing on big data. Uh, so why do you focus on, quote, small data when the world or everybody else is talking about big data? 
So that actually gets us uh, directly back to what you mentioned about VUCA. So if you have big data, we are essentially talking about com complicated, recurring, but understood dynamics. So um, building a factory, how the factory runs, um, sending aircraft into space. Those are, it's in principle, it's understood. There are mistakes, but you can use the data to understand where are issues, what are the parts that tend to die, predictive maintenance, and what have you. And you can do that with logistics and many other consumer behavior. When do people jump over from a mere interest and clicking to potentially, potentially buying a product? But what I'm, I'm looking for is, A, in a different world. It's not in a complicated world. It's in a complex world. Difference being... Every time you would have the same starting point, you would actually end up somewhere else, uh, simply because too many factors are involved and a lot of human decision making is in there. And I am looking for the opposite. I'm looking for small data. By the time you have big data, it's already occurring. In a perfect world, and I am aware that doesn't exist, I would be able to identify the first time a change happens. Now, this is unlikely, but you get the idea. I'm, by the time you can already run trend analyses and so on on a set of data, it's certainly not new. You want to capture at something at an early stage when the number of um, occurrences is relatively small. So it is kind of not a competitor. It's a bit the opposite. It's complementary. Um, and I think it's something to consider. Big data is something everybody talks about. Foresight has become a bit more popular, and I think people heard about it, I think in part because of the pandemic, uh, but it's certainly something that is worthwhile considering. Okay, so it's not an either or, it's an and. I agree, absolutely. Okay. Well, of course, I read your book, so. <laughs> <laughs> No, th no, thank you for clarifying. And, and I think it's important uh, that we address those kinds of questions because, you know, so, you know, there are you know, people throwing buzzwords over there. So why we do things and why one thing versus another. So uh, that kind of uh, brings me uh, to the next question. Uh, you know, throughout the book and actually in your writings, in your articles, you advocate scanning or the use of scanning. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about scanning? So what's the scanning? So in, in a way, and I mean, Gibson's quote, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Um, it's, it's perhaps the, the starting point. So you already have pockets in the world, some business people trying a new marketing approach, some consumers developing new behavior and so on. And you want to find those pieces and redistribute them in a way that you can make sense of them. So the way you do it is you essentially look at the world uh, and you try to find data points or developments, events that strike you as unusual, something that is perhaps outside of what you would expect and outside what common business practices are. At this stage, we're not saying that this is successful. It might be simply a mistake. But by collecting those various events, and putting them together, you can develop a little bit of a template what the future could look like. And you grab those data points, you put them into what I call a pattern, which gives you an understanding. So it's not about one person doing something and perhaps not understanding 
how that approach should work or maybe having no idea about the business world. It's There's a method to the madness. More people, more organizations are trying to achieve something, but at that stage, it might still be an experiment. You put this together, you develop a pattern which is more robust than a single data point. And then over time, you develop a narrative. Now, narratives have a huge advantage. We just talked about big data. Big data is important, but most people really have a hard time envisioning what data statistics, how this comes together and what it means for the future. A narrative I can follow. Everybody can follow narratives because this is the way we communicate and we understand, we intuitively understand if there are fallacies or if there's something that strikes us that that doesn't really come together or it clicks. You're going like, yes, that is true. That could be a change for the future. And these narratives are also easy to communicate. I can give you a short story, maybe even an elevator pitch, and you might go like, yeah, that's perhaps something to consider. So you go from small data points that strike you as unusual, you group those, put those in patterns, and then you really think about what it means and develop a narrative that you can communicate to provide an idea where strategies might run into hurdles, or perhaps where new strategies could prove successful. Okay, so um, in terms of process, do you think, how do you compare, the, and I have to keep going back because people want to hear a lot about, you know, big data, but how do you consider the two approaches, the scanning and the big data? You think that scanning is superior to big data, or are we still talking about something that complementary? Are they substitutes? Are they complements? Um, how does that relationship work, really? So I, I'm not advocating that it is a superior approach. I am saying that it's uh, underappreciated and underutilized approach. And I think that really makes a difference that whereas big data, we heard this term now for years and uh, statistics, obviously important, all the market research, analysis, quantitative approaches, this is important and we understand it is important and companies are employing these approaches but then there is the world of qualitative analysis and somehow uh, i think it fell a little bit through the cracks and if it's done it's in a haphazard way uh, what i'm saying is by using having another tool in the toolbox you might actually have the advantage of having some piece of information that others don't have perhaps this could be the key to a competitive advantage uh, yes, indeed. So we have a couple of comments. Uh, my uh, good friend Joyce here, Joyce Joyce, she's also a fantastic futurist uh, author, a book author, and she has a wonderful newsletter. If you guys have not seen her newsletter, you should. I should put a link, and I hope that I got Joyce here to talk to us. But she's talking a little bit about in terms of, you know, those are the weak signals, right? Is that is that how the way you see it as well? Absolutely. Joyce, thanks for bringing this up. Yes, I am looking for weak signals that over time might become stronger. It's essentially, I, I think what is important to understand, uh, a weak signal indicates that there's a potential for change. It does not mean, oh, here's a signal, and I'm predicting that the world will move down a certain pathway. What I'm saying with a weak signal is there is a potential that the world might play out differently than you might expect. So you're essentially building up uh, alternative futures to consider. And I am aware 
that companies have certain strategies that implicitly have a certain future in mind. <clears throat> and I'm not saying abandon your strategy. I'm just saying think about what could affect you and develop a plan B or put some options out there to have a chance to switch quickly. Um, I always think a little bit about it, my personal life. So I might lose my job. I might get a disease, uh, but I want to make sure that my family is doing okay. So I might put some money aside. I might get a life insurance. That doesn't mean I'm predicting that I will lose my job. I'm just saying the option is out there. And the more of those critical options or changes in the environment you can identify, the more clear it becomes to you what can hit you, and then you can prepare for that. But that makes the weak signal. It's not a strong signal, oh, we are now moving in a new direction. It's a weak signal. There is a potential for a change in the external environment. Yeah, we have some other comments. So I want to welcome you know, Paul Santilli, a friend as well. He's a strategist at uh, HPE. And he talks about, and in his writing and his speeches, he also mentions, you know, the early warning signals, the canary in the, in the coal mine, importance of signals. So, so do you agree with that? Should we, be put, should we be putting more emphasis or, you know, investing more time, resources, and energy into understanding what he calls signals and Joyce's, uh, the weak signals? Uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, should we be investing more into this? Absolutely. And uh, there is a reason for doing so. And I do understand that there are quarterly reports and you have to, there, there is a certain thinking about uh, the short-term thinking um, rules the world. And that is true because you have quarterly reports. It's also true because you have managers who might consider their tenure with a company or in a position to be two or three years. So they might actually not even care what happens 10 years down the road. But At the beginning of a new development, you have not invested a lot. So you have a freedom to really think about what the future might mean. And it's easy to steer certain parts of the organizations into that direction. If it's only an investment in a company that is doing something in that field. Later on, once you build all the factories, you have the logistics and a supply chain in place. You already have markets. A change then is extremely expensive or potentially impossible. So consider that early signals give you just a lot of leeway uh, to address the future. Wonderful. Uh, so let's uh, go back. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, Joyce is with us and she shared the link, the hermantrendelat.com. And by the way, I will be uh, posting it in the comments. So we'll see the link. We're going to see the links. Uh, Uh, from Martin's book and his podcast. And I'm going to see the links uh, for Joyce's newsletter. Fantastic newsletter. I love it. And uh, Joyce, I have to get you on the show too. You have to come in and, and talk to, to, to all of us here. So I want to uh, basically uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, so in terms of uh, the future, right? So uh, can you actually predict the future or can your method predict the future? And if so, I'm I'm waiting the six winning numbers for the lotto, whatever we can share. <laughs> I, I will split 50-50 or, or we can negotiate. But uh, uh, is scanning a, a good methodology to predict the future? No, it's not. <laughs> Because um, 
there is no way to predict the future. And if I could predict the future, I might not even be here because I might be on my yacht somewhere in the Caribbean Sea since I won the lottery. Um, no, it, it cannot predict the future. And I think just as a side note, and I think this is a little bit the problem with quantitative approaches, embedded into these approaches is the idea um, that you there are assumptions, there's a confidence interval. So there are a lot of information in there that makes it relative what the number actually means. Now, from a managerial point of view, a lot of times this data is used as a prediction. So, hey, if this market will grow by 30% over the next four years, we should have another factory and we should build it there. That might be a very logical um, conclusion if this number actually would be a prediction. It is not. It's not meant to be, but numbers are, tend, to, tend to be used like this. So it is, it is not about predicting the future. It is about understanding what the future might bring and then uh, finding ways how you would be able to address it. So if, for instance, you know that there is a certain technology out there that there could directly compete with your products and services. Um, but you know it's not really working correctly. You know it's really fairly expensive. You should at least take into consideration that this might happen. So it would be good to monitor such developments. Now, this is an easy example. A lot of times you know what the technologies are that could be a problem. But by looking beyond your industry, you will develop an understanding how the marketplace can develop and then think about it. No, it's not about predicting. It's about sketching the potential possibilities. So uh, actually, Joyce made another uh, comment, and thank you so much uh, for sharing. Uh, but actually, you know, there's several war stories, and I've seen that happen time and time again, right? So uh, you do predict, and it's out there, but ah, who cares about that, right? So and she said in her story, she predicted something that, you know, was about, uh, uh, to happen, but then the CEO said, well, no problem, you know, I won't be around here anyway. So uh, do, should you still do that if, if people hit the proverbial ignore button? Or what is your advice? How do you get people excited about uh, when you present your scanning and there, there are so many different possibilities for them to take action? How, how do you get people energized to actually take action so that, you know, this person says, you know, I won't be around, you know, but if if everybody thought like that, we would not have any jackfruit, right? Jackfruit takes, you know, 40 years to, to mature. So the person that planted the tree probably will not be eating the fruit. But what are your thoughts? So how do you deal with the spec, basically the people who are, you know, skeptical or mm, they don't care? Thank so there are, there, there are two parts, choice, And I, I completely, I, I agree with you. It's, it's very difficult. As a foresight person, <laughs> a little bit. In a lot of cases, you are actually saying things nobody wants to hear because you have a product line that's successful and suddenly there's this foresight person coming from the side going, hey, we might get an issue in two years. Consider this. So uh, you're, you're providing information that not necessarily is not necessarily welcome. Um, so what I do, so there are two parts I want to talk about. The first part is um, about the consideration of how to actually get people interested. And there are the positive examples, and we know about those companies uh, that are now successful. Um, but 
surprisingly, it's easier if you talk about uh, the Nokia's, uh, Kodak's, and other companies in the world. For instance, file sharing, uh, the Napsters of the world. These are shock elements, and that's why I use them in the book. It's a bit dated, but people remember when Napster came up and they heard the first time about Napster. What I find very interesting is just in the mid-90s, the British uh, music uh, industry actually said, well, wait a second, we should charge $40 for a CD because a hardcover book at the beginning uh, when it comes out, the first publication is really expensive, and then it becomes paperback, and we should use the same system to essentially have a tiered uh, pricing system. And if you really think about it, this was essentially five years before the value of music kind of dropped. How much is it worth now? People go on YouTube and consume it for free. The entire model completely changed. So these are kind of shock effects where people understand, oh, this is uh, this is something that I should have uh, kept in mind. Now, with the part of prediction, and it's, um, again, two parts. So one is, do not assume that it's irrational if somebody says, I'm only interested in the next two years. Well, if this is for your personal career, uh, it's actually a very rational decision. So you need to put it into the organizational DNA in some way or another, because as an individual, you might say, I'm leaving the company. My plan is to leave the company in three years. I just need something to show for the time. Um, and then there is a part which is interesting about foresight that people love, in my experience, to participate in foresight um, workshops to become aware. And then they know I'm aware now, but they don't prepare. So in my book, I actually provide a Example, which is almost terrifying. In 2011, the European Commission um, uh, commissioned a, it was a comic book, about what would happen if a pandemic would hit. It's called Infected. You can go online, you can download it. It's a comic book, and it's 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 obviously has a science fiction character uh, coming from the future and telling you about a pandemic that hit, and people needed social distancing, and they needed to wear, wear masks, and because of uh, international flight, uh, it spread quickly globally, and in order to address it, there had to be a lockdown. Down and during the lockdown, a lot of people had to deal with depression. This sounds extremely familiar. This is kind of what happened over the past one and a half years. And the idea, the potential for that was available for free online 10 years ago. So, A, you need to move from awareness to preparedness. B, the unfortunately scary part is who wants to spend a lot of money on something that might happen when you can, for instance, simply build a new bridge. It looks better to cut a ribbon than doing something in the background. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done for foresight uh, to get people to, go, to move along the long-term thinking route and then move from awareness to preparedness. Joyce, I'm with you. Uh, we foresight people have sometimes those moments where we actually said something that happened and nobody really cared. So uh, there's a lot of uh, educational work necessary in that field. 
Now, I wanted to continue along the same uh, line of thought. So I think one of the difficulties we have, and you mentioned, well, it's science fiction. So science fiction has good and bad, right? Uh, well, uh, most people look at this and uh, that would never happen. This is uh, science fiction and people tend to discount, whereas a lot of people use science fiction in a very positive way to raise awareness of issues. So I remember there were, there were science fiction books about an attack on the Capitol in the United States and people just said, nah, this is a joke that would never happen. And then January 6th happened, right? Uh, so um, and what is your view uh, in, on the use of science fiction uh, to predict futures uh, or to help uh, raise awareness, preparedness, it's a yay or nay, or is this something you recommend? So... Um, there are a lot of things to be said. First of all, uh, what science fiction definitely helps you is to expand your thinking. And, and there's science fiction that actually is grounded in realities and then takes a spin from there. And then there's science fiction that considers a completely different world and moves over to the fantasy genre. You obviously want to be in, in an area where you can say, okay, this is something that potentially could happen, and then you need to take it into consideration. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of companies look at science fiction to get new ideas, uh, and also the government and the military is looking at science fiction to develop an understanding uh, about the possibilities and what could happen. There's even, interestingly, and I'm now digressing a little bit, but there is a school of thought out there that says science fiction can have a surprisingly deterministic effect on uh, the future by presenting a solution that then becomes like a common good, like the tricorder in enterprise. Everybody said, that's this device. That would be great. So it perhaps we would have a different device and not a handheld smartphone and computer if enterprise wouldn't, Kirk wouldn't have shown us uh, that this is a future. Uh, there are other um, ideas too. Um, a lot of the geoengineering obviously comes from that area. But again, this is, I think, more a little bit of a philosophical but interesting aspect. Science fiction definitely can help uh, to prepare your thinking for a new uh, possibilities, but if you use it, you should at least uh, try to pad it with some real-world examples that you can provide that give me as a decision-maker the feeling, okay, okay, maybe we are already moving a little bit in this direction. Just saying, hey, in 40 years this could happen, is the horizon is also too long for most investment cycles. So you want to be careful going too much in the science fiction realm. It is certainly uh, a, a good way to get new ideas. Wonderful. So I want to, uh, so the people really want to switch back to the topic of uncertainty. So I have, uh, Paul, thank you again for sharing your thoughts. So he's saying uh, a major challenge is how to manage perpetual disruption. So not just disruption, but perpetual ever happening disruption, right? So at both the local and at the global levels, right? And sketching the potential possibilities for the future. Do you have any thoughts or advice to share on that? Managing perpetual disruptions. Well, uh, that the management or that first the foresight, the understanding what the future might bring, has to become second nature 
because then the perpetual becomes more of a ongoing development is just what happens uh, in the marketplace and uh, from a different perspective you also have to think about how you actually manage those uncertainties and uh, those disruptions or whatever you want to call the transformations uh, there's one way and this is the way a lot of companies and even a lot of individuals manage the world it's like ooh, 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 something happens today it's not good i need to manage it i need to put out the fire the problem is if you get in this constant putting out fires mode, you're actually are completely distracted from preventing the next fire. So there is a chance in a, in a perfect world again, you will never avoid that one or two fires will flare up and you will have to take care of them. But if you are ahead and you're preventing fires by becoming aware that the possibility exists, once the fire starts, you essentially take your fire extinguisher that you already next to um, next to the fire uh, to, to uh, extinguish the fire. So it, it's a little bit about the mindset in general. If you just expect the world is a constant change, you will address it differently than if you expect that there is a clear pathway and that deviations are the surprise. It's, it, I would almost say if you have a sketched out pathway and you can stay on that one, that should be the surprise. Uh, it's likely that something will happen that you at least have to adjust, potentially completely abandon your strategy. So it's it's a very it's a very crucial question. How do you manage it if if there's constant change going on? Um, but even in a VUCA world, even in a world that's speeding up the change, which I think is true, uh, if you keep options in mind and look at the potential, it becomes much easier to navigate. Yes, and it uh, seems like uh, uh, people like that, uh, you know, Paul is saying, you know, uh, deterministic effect on future, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to uh, change years a little bit. And uh, one thing that uh, Joyce was saying is that she likes your thoughts in terms of moving from awareness to preparedness. So I guess uh, for me, and thank you, uh, my Intel colleagues, uh, to be here. Too many years at Intel, it's always about actionable and action, right? So what kind of advice do you offer? So how can we help, in our case, companies move from just, I'm aware, but maybe I should prepare. So this, this path or this transition from awareness uh, into preparedness, uh, how can we coach people on how to do this better? Ouch. It is difficult. It's, it's actually on my mind uh, for years Part of it, quite honestly, was the reason why I put the book together, to explain the concept a little bit more, to make people understand why it is important, why it actually has an effect, why you actually can plan for the future and change what you're doing. Uh, I do believe there are a couple of ground rules, just building a scenario of opportunities, coming up with early signals of change and just presenting them I call that corporate entertainment, and we all love that. I mean, being in embedded, immersed in a world that is different, that's fun. But if you then go home and say, okay, and tomorrow I'm working on the product that I uh, worked yesterday on, <clears throat> then you essentially didn't take away the information. So an easy way, and I find it it is almost too simple, but I think simple is always good because people understand what you're doing. 
is, uh, and I present it in my book, but it's a tool that's widely used, impact uncertainty chart or impact uh, the time frame chart, uh, where, you, where you say, well, hold on. So um, this would be something that actually has a high impact on my operations, and this has a low impact. You should be careful with what is low impact because it's easy to say, well, that doesn't affect me. But nevertheless, so you take out the low impact, focus on the high impact, and you will find there are some things that are already going on. And perhaps you already kind of missed the boat a little bit. So here would be the clear, hey, we need to come up with a plan. Let's meet next week, uh, discuss what kind of options we have, how we could address the issue. Then there are issues where you are aware, well, something is missing here. So this technology is not necessarily uh, market ready. Uh, it's commercially perhaps not viable at this stage, but perhaps there's only a piece missing or perhaps only a consumer segment that says, hey, I want to try this. So this is something where you monitor. So you have a list of monitoring technologies. It's an ongoing process where perhaps once a month you get together and you say, well, you know, it seems like this is developing in a direction that it could become an issue. And then there is uh, stuff that's far out. Uh, I, I usually describe that as a watch list where once a year you might do a little bit of a study uh, if this has developed in a different directions. I do not want in this context to talk about wildcards, which is a completely different animal. But nevertheless, you actually want to sort your narratives to go back to what i said before on such a timeline and uh, uncertainty chart I'd obviously in, in uh, context of the impact they would have on your operations and then you literally need to assign people to take care of it if you do not assign it then nobody will take care of it so it is a crucial topic and in a lot of cases it's painful because you assign potentially a task to somebody that might kill that person's product line. So you, you, it's very dicey to navigate. Nevertheless, um, in order to get preparedness and actionability, you need to assign the task. Important topic, though. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, so I have some other thoughts and comments uh, from the room. So people are still concerned. We're still suffering through the effects of the pandemic. Actually, in parts of Europe and parts of the US, it's surging back again. So in your perspective, how could we use um, either scanning or futuring or future studies to help alleviate some of the, the stress that people are feeling, the, the pressure of the pandemic, the hopelessness? Uh, so how can we bring futures to bear to alleviate that suffering? Uh, so I, let's go back to the past to see what we could have done and then what we can do now. Uh, in the past, I think the potential was there. And the pandemic is, from my perspective, very interesting in that people said, well, uh, so this is the black swan, uh, the famous black swan. Who could have predicted that? Well, truth is, it's a little bit like I live in San Francisco, moving to San Francisco and being surprised that there's an earthquake. Okay, I might not be able to predict when it will take place. I might not be able to predict um, how strong that earthquake will be, but um, I know there will be an earthquake. And that's the same with the pandemic. Now, the question is then, as a foresight person, what could be the different developments? So how would people react? Um, what are the impacts that could occur? For instance, perhaps it should have been clear that there is 
uh, a stress on the supply chains and so on and on travel and on business operations. Uh, likely it should have been clear that uh, remote work and um, online conferencing becomes more common. But then there are other parts where you really perhaps didn't know which direction it would go. Robotic applications, for instance, would they take off or would people be scared if robots run around and uh, measure your temperature? So from where we are now, the important thing is to really look at the next steps forward. So what is what could happen in the future? And let's make this really simple, just simplified approach. Um, it, we could go back to the way everything was. Or we could actually redesign supply chains in a completely decentralized way. And we could have a completely different look at how uh, the urban environments will be designed. So, for instance, the September 11 attacks had obviously a geopolitical effect, but it also changed the way we designed airports, but also urban environments in general. We the possibility of a terror attack into consideration. Similarly, we could look at what the pandemic taught us and redesign those environments uh, if there's the willingness and the money. But you see where this is going now. If I'm an architect, if I'm into urban design, if in a construction company, uh, if I am a technology company, you obviously want to look at those areas that might change as a direct result. But you should keep in mind that perhaps in five years we just go to go back to business as usual. I am sorry, I, I can't. I think I lost your sound. Can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Okay, thank. You. So I, uh, I'm sorry. I, I want to still continue on the topic of uncertainty. So at the beginning we talked a lot about you know managing uncertainty or the growing uncertainty. So how is it that scanning can be used as a tool to help us um, deal with this growing or ever-growing uncertainty? I think in the end, and uh, talk to another futurist who said, well, it doesn't, it doesn't allow you to manage uncertainty. And it obviously doesn't necessarily uh, reduce uncertainty because you still, you still don't know if it's going to happen or not, uh, but you will know though is what the different pain points are where change could occur so you're framing the uncertainties and by framing them you automatically give yourself uh, a focus area where those uncertainties what are the big uncertainties what what are the things that would be an inconvenience and you can deal with it when it happens and what is the stuff that really will blow you out of the water individually and as a company these are the areas you a want to really monitor and b you want to have a plan b in place so by by just giving the by defining what are the uncertain areas and putting overlaying so to speak the impact this uncertainty could have you, you develop a very good plan where to focus your um, resources. You can't do everything at the same time. It's impossible. So focus on the handful of developments that really could mean change for you, your marketplace, your product, your success. 
Wonderful. So I'm a little bit curious about your process. So when you're going through uh, your, your scanning exercises uh, or your scanning process, so what kind of information are you looking for? We, so what am I looking for? It's essentially everything that, and you know, that there are terms, there are disruptions, there are transformations and so on. There uh, is unconventional wisdom outlier. But in the end, what I always say, it's a, it's, it's uh, an oddity. It's something you look at and you're going, really, why would anybody do this? At this stage, it might be simply a mistake. Nevertheless, it's a different approach. And by doing this and putting the information together, you can develop a rich set um, to work with what the future might bring. So in these classes, what we start with is general understanding. And I essentially give this field that I uh, provided you in the first half an hour. You want to go from developments to patterns and then to narratives, identify those an impact uncertainty chart, and then uh, extract what that means for your strategy and for your potential options. And I will do the same with classes. So first we talk about why are we doing this? Why is this helpful? Uh, what are we looking for? And then we will collect events and developments that could have an impact on the future. Now, there is a little bit the problem. It can be everything. It can be a new product introduction, a new technology, a new marketing approach, consumer behavior. It can be anecdotal evidence. It can be you're coming home and your children doing something on the computer and you're going, that's kind of bizarre. I've never seen this. This could indicate a change because somewhere it's starting. Uh, there are two things to be said, though. You uh, want to make sure it's relevant people tend to get hung up with curiosities. They are interesting, they are fun, but in the end, if you think about it, what it means for businesses, likely not that much. So you wanna sort those out, you wanna focus on the relevant ones, and then you wanna make sure that it's actually an accurate and reliable data point. And this is becoming increasingly difficult with mis and disinformation. When I started more than 20 years ago, it was difficult to get information. I mean, we literally still copied uh, articles and then you had to analyze it. It was difficult to put it in a form and shape to sort through. Now it's the opposite um, problem. There's so much information and a lot of it is actually wrong, misleading or parts are missing. So you really want to make sure to clean up the data points and to put them into context to understand if this is real information, if the company is actually doing what the reporter is trying to say. Um, it's, as a side note, uh, reporting has become more problematic too because everybody's faster, faster, faster. And reporters and journalists have to be faster, faster, faster. So there is a tendency to just take over information, for instance, from a press release, which might stretch the truth. So um, it's about relevant information and it's about making sure that it's accurate. Otherwise, every source is fair game. Understand. Okay, so um, I'm a business and let's say I, I really want to start on your approach, uh, scanning. I want to conduct a scanning exercise or a scanning initiative. What kind of advice uh, do you offer for the people who are listening on the call who said, you know what, I'm interested. Actually, you know, go out, uh, get his book, read it. It's very good reading, very interesting. Uh, hey, uh, before Christmas, uh, more opportunities to get, get the book, right? But say, uh, I'm a business and I'm interested. What's your advice? Uh, 
Where do I go from here? What do I do? So, um, get started. That is that. That's the the easy way to say it. Now, businesses, and that is um, perhaps the problem. They do it in a haphazard way, so they kind of assume that if something important happens, uh, the board member or the product manager will pay attention to it. Or you might even think, well, I, I'm not doing it, but somebody in this organization likely will do it. And that's usually not the case. So get started. Make it clear who's in charge, where these foresight um function will actually be located is it a part of market research is it more the strategic part and then ensure and this is crucial what are the pathways of communication so that you get the the insights that the foresight team will provide you with to the right person who can actually use it if you forget about the communication channels you will have a group of great and initially motivated people in a room coming up with good insights that never reach the audience to make the strategic decision. Get started, take it from there, see what mistakes you're making, and then improve upon it. I certainly will. Now, I have a ton more questions. I unfortunately don't have more time. So uh, you have to promise me you're going to come back because I have several people. I love asking, this. <laughs> uh, they want to know more about the metaverse, and you wrote about the metaverse uh, quite extensively. So uh, you know, I, I hope you can uh, come here. Uh, come to the show again and uh, we have another conversation so again thank you so very much about 20% uh, of uh, the audiences actually in Germany so thank you so much thank you for thank you so very much Rome so, thanks so yeah. much and thanks so much to all the listeners vielen Dank fürs Zuhören hat super Spaß gemacht thank you so very much one more time so I'm going to transition again, and uh, I'm going to welcome uh, Kai Gerlich. Uh, hi, Kai, and welcome to the show. Hello. Oh, good to have my you. picture is not... Yes, let me let me work on the on the light here. Okay. Well, you still have hair. Uh, I don't. So uh, you uh, can, yeah, uh, you can you can work <laughs> you can work on your hairdo. Uh, I I can't work on my hairdo anymore. Or my wife just shaves my head. It's okay. It's part of the drama. <laughs> so uh, again, okay, uh, uh, welcome and uh, welcome and thank you for being here. So uh, you know, again, uh, you're, you're one of the top futurists, perhaps the top in Germany, one of the top in the world. Uh, you've been a past chief futurist at SAP, one of the largest uh, companies in the world. Uh, you write, you present, you go to conferences. And now you've been working at uh, Visionary Labs. Can you sh tell us a little bit mm -hmm. about uh, you uh, and whatever I did not say and uh, a little bit about Visionary Labs? So what kind of work you do there? Yes. So many thanks for having me here. And um, I'll explain a little bit about um, actually what we do and how I, how I came here. So I'm, as you said, rightfully, I'm a futurist. So I worked um, several years in at SAP and I worked myself through competitive intelligence into market research and then uh, to become a futurist. So um, actually I was curious because I never could find out why companies move in, in what directions. And at that point in time, it's quite quite some, some years ago, it was called trends. 
and I tried to follow the map. So after a while, I figured out that's uh, called corporate foresight or futuring or however you want to call it. And so I decided to do that as my, my main job, which was difficult, which is still difficult. Nowadays, uh, you have some futurists, but uh, some years ago, it was not the case. Um, so I went into that one. For, from a training, I'm a biologist. So I ha have a scientific background, which sometimes helps and sometimes not. <laughs> we can talk about it later, maybe. And um, but it uh, certainly helps to um, to research information. And I was listening to Martin, and uh, considered to have the same problems. So basically, uh, finding the right information is really tricky today. And um, in the last years, I found out the link, or we found out the link between foresight and innovation. So we realized that there is a close link. So if you do not have a picture of the future, a very good picture of the future, um, then uh, the problem is that you don't know how to innovate because uh, you, you innovate in a certain direction. But as we know, the future is not, uh, not static, it may change. And um, to link these perspectives is, in, in our view, essential. That's what I do at Visionary Labs. So I'm the futurist there. I set up the scenarios, so to say. I try. I help companies to get into into their futures, to design their futures, and then we link the the stuff to basically to innovation. Wonderful. So I want to switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk to you a little bit about your work um, mm -hmm. in teaching. Right. So you are on the advisory board for the Corporate Foresight Program at the European Business mm -hmm. School, right? So what kinds of skills European companies look for when they hire foresight professionals? Or should I say rather, what kind of skills should they be looking for when they are hiring or when they are looking for someone who is uh, into future studies or a foresight practitioner? What they should look for, of course, is, is uh, open-mindedness and a kind of... Um, I would say desire to really find more about um, the futures, about what they can do and what they they may do. So basically, how I say, they should try to find out how to survive the next thirty years. Maybe that's a good um, good starting point. Usually, they only try to find out the next trends within the next three, four, five years, and uh, how they can improve their products or come up with the next big thing product. And uh, that's usually. A little bit too close to the now and in most cases not the relevant question because we stay in what we call the path dependency so you, you simply do what you have always been doing um, just with a certain flavor of, um, of of future which is usually not the future but as i said a flavor of it so a little bit more sustainability a little bit more digital but that's not how the future will unfold it will change significantly usually and um it's when, when, when the times are not interesting, um, then it's easy to predict the future. If times get interesting, like we have now, then it's not so easy. So then, then, then you figure out, oops, I have to think a little bit more. Um, I cannot come up with linear thinking, as we say. So linear thinking would be just, uh, you know, I consider the now uh, to move into the future just with a little slight changes, uh, as I said, as flavors. And that's not, not going to be the future. So companies should really look for, for professional help in open thinking, I would say, in, in not falling into the trap of following the already thought patterns, 
the 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 stuff that can be read easily out there that this is their future or that even is the future because in most cases um the the uh, the, the stuff that you read read there is a is is a certain idea of a future uh, with with a certain assumption behind it that you're usually not aware of or that's usually not open and in some cases even heavily influenced by politics or by by some other ideas and uh, if you're own, if you're in a company or an organization you should come up with your own ideas so so they should look for people that help them to find their own ideas their own future and design it find your own path i guess right mm -hmm. so uh, i want to uh, switch gears a little bit and i want to talk a, a little bit about uh, value so uh, and thank you very much you you write for the blog you write for the magazine and, and thank you you're here talking mm -hmm. with the uh, audience so uh, uh, you wrote an article for us called uh, Thinking Futures in Interesting mm -hmm. Times, right? So uh, I want to go back to one of the things you wrote, one of your quotes, and you said, uh, and I'm going to quote, so futures are inaccurate and so are maps, but we have good use for them, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so yeah. uh, if, it, if it's not accurate, why should we do it? In other words, uh, why we look into the future anyway, or what's the value of looking into the future if it's not accurate? Yes, that's the one of the tricky questions that you get usually from people who are very um, focused, who are very um, driven with efficiency and productivity. So they think, why should I think ahead? I mean, basically, you know, you, you don't know what the future, how the future will unfold. So why should should I look into it? Um, if you look into the history of war, um, which then then you and and follow the strategist, they usually say. Um, the bad, the the worst thing that can happen is that I'm getting surprised, and uh, this is actually, I think, one of the the tricks: not to be totally surprised by things unfolding in a direction you have never thought before. Um, so we we don't know how the future will unfold. We have no idea if this will become the future or if the, there will be another direction. But at least we thought several futures and we are prepared to move into that direction. And while we are walking into that future, you will actually find out if uh, this future is interesting or that, that or if how you can steer around. And I think not to be prepared means that you simply are dependent on, on, on the assumptions of other people, which may work, of course. But I think the, 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 the downside of not thinking ahead is that you will never be able to create your own future to design it. And uh, this is, I think, what most companies miss. They basically make uh, make business. They are in a certain um, in, in a certain industry, in a certain supply chain, but they gave up to design their own company or to, to design their own future to change something. They're just waiting that something happens or somebody tells them to do so. And uh, if you think as a person as a person being it's like you're waiting uh, for a coach to tell you move this direction or that direction you know coaching good coaching doesn't work that way um that's why it feels weird sometimes we don't like it we we usually want to hear move there move here but that's not um that that won't work so open thinking and and designing your own future is the trick and as the future is not set which is fun basically because it would if it would be set it would be fate um, move ahead and try to find out where where you can really change significantly the world and your life and 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 the values. Okay, so we want to change subjects a little bit, and I know you talk about the future, but I want to ask you about the past. You know, <laughs> so so you know, 
it's a natural question. People do ask this all the time, right? So some people have this view of this notion that the future is associated, related, or caused by the past. Others say, you know, past is not a good predictor of the future. So uh, in any event, what's your perspective? What has the past to do with the future? Yeah, usually it's that what we call a path dependency. So usually you, when you do something very good, um, you want to go on doing that very good. And uh, you simply uh, usually go on mo doing it, like um, um, like producing certain products or, or following a certain a certain idea. And of course, in, in German, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's nice. I will translate it. It's keine Zukunft ohne Herkunft. No future without uh, knowing where you come from. It's basically a translation. So if you're not, not, if you do not know where you came from, then, then it's difficult to construct a future. It's, it's simply um, that, that the, the, the aiming of the, the future arrow is, is not, not very correct. You have to know how the systems in, in, the, in the past work to find out how, how the future pathways may work because it's not completely independent. Um, sometimes we construct something completely new, of course. So the internet was something that uh, was completely new, but usually, usually it's not. Usually you have certain certain elements coming from the past that you should be aware of like um, if you look back like like politics for um, over that that politics uh, moves through the centuries even in, in into into economics and if you're aware of it then then you can at least know what's going on so the past has has an influence on the future of course so you, sh you sh should know a little bit about it but uh, we should uh, be aware that we Still can change it, so it's it's um, always a. Uh, it's we we don't have to completely to rely on it or completely to to be held back by by the past. We can of course change it. Wonderful. So uh, we always press for this question, right, about uh, the value or the ROI. And since so many of my Intel colleagues or my former colleagues are on the call, there's always this pressure about uh, uh, DROI. So uh, so in practical terms, you know, some companies invest a lot of money into foresight, uh, others invest less, others invest, others invest a lot less, others don't invest at all. Uh, so uh, the, question, the real question is, uh, those organizations that actually do have a clear future site, right? Mm -hmm. Are they more successful than others? I think so. I think so. I hope so. Uh, but maybe they're not. I think it's a certain risk risk calculation that uh, that you have to do. So if you're in a in a very predictable industry, then for a while you maybe don't have to to do any good research. Um, the problem is that that we usually when we talk about ROI, we usually um, measure the ROI on on the product we already have so so you think okay i know my product i know the how it will extend into the future um what i will do as next so basically the what we call the incremental innovation then the, the product development and if you then skip this this uh, this process so you jump to the future then the calculation gets tricky because you don't know how much you have to invest to really come up with a product that looks completely different or to open up new markets and then this ROI calculation doesn't work that way as it works for a product that you already know. The problem is that's only valid if 
the whole overall situation is linear. So if everything moves into the direction, like if let's let's make a give an example, like what we have now in the automotive industry with moving from um, motors built on on fossil fuels to to uh, um, electric vehicles. And uh, th this is not linear. So you have to then calculate differently. So the risk of missing it is sometimes bigger than um, than not than than the investments you have to take. So it's always a, a kind of risk calculation. And in order to do it, you have to have an idea of how the future may look like. So you have to think, is there actually a future with electric vehicles only? And if so, uh, I somehow have to move into it. So your ROI considerations are then not that important because it's more than a matter of life and death. And um, sometimes we miss these uh, these points, and sometimes we miss these um, ideas, even if they are not not as um, as big or as blunt as I laid out. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do have a comment uh, from uh, Dr. Azia Islam from Palo Alto Networks. She, she really likes the fact that you say, you know, where you come from, but she's saying, wow, especially in politics mm -hmm. and in economics. So I think you made it in all pastel shades or all shades of grays, right? So what do you mean by knowing where you come from? Yes. Um, first of all, I think... As I said, it's it's about. I like the concept of the path dependency. It's a uh, concept from sociology and biology. Biology, so it basically means that um, we usually move. If you have a construction model like in biology, so um, um, you have four legs, then it's really difficult to develop yourself into two legs or six legs. You know, you usually um, will move into the future and try to make it work with four legs. And we do the same for organizations. So if we have a certain pattern, uh, certain things that we go, do very good, then, then we move along. And you can see for, for some of the successful companies that they do differently. You can check out what Amazon did or what, or what Netflix did. So they jumped from, from a certain point uh, of what they did into something new, like Netflix decided, oh, we do, do not stream anymore, just to stream anymore, we produce now films. You could say, okay, that's more or less the same business, but most companies wouldn't go that far. And Amazon basically did the same several times. So they realized that although they know where they come from, where their strength is, like, like streaming, they have to add something. And they, they move outside their clear path dependency. And um, that's okay. If you, if you stay in your path dependency, it's okay as long as the supply chain is still working. But if that supply chain, and that's just what we observe now, is getting a little bit tricky or not so stable anymore, then you have to, to find out what you do. And in order to do so, you have to know your strength. So be aware of where you come from, what you know, what you are good at, and try to work yourself into the future. Uh, I wanted to uh, go back to uh, your thought about the ROI. So there's always, especially here in the US, there's a lot of pressure. So the immediacy, right? I have to you know, produce results within the quarter. And in foresight, you're thinking about the long run survival of the mm -hmm. firm, right? So in many aspects, uh, do you agree with the comment or do you not agree? So when we focus too much on the ROI, maybe we cut our legs short or instead of investing all we should to make that spanking great product or the thing that will get people excited. Wow, the ROI is not there, but we don't think of it in terms of uh, uh, the strategic value of what that product or that idea will add to the portfolio. So what are your thoughts? Should we look beyond ROI? Uh, 
I think so. ROI is a, for for a product that you that you know very good, and um, but if you think the product ahead, then you cannot just rely on your ROI because, as I said, it's based on the now. So you exactly know I have to invest, let's say, ten million to improve this product, and I exactly know how to sell it into a market. So you know how much money you will make with an improved product based on the informations you have from the competition. That's an easy calculation. Um, so. That's what businesses know. In the moment you make a jump, a leapfrog with that product into something new, and I mean not just a small improvement, although these small improvements are usually 80% of what we do, and they, of course, are there to, to make you survive. I mean a bigger movement into something something else. Then this calculation doesn't work. So the risk of, of uh, it, it's just... It's just a different different lens. So you can think of most of your standard products, ROI will work as long as you are in a standard market. If the market moves in another direction, then 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 this doesn't doesn't work anymore. Because if somebody else, if a competition makes this leapfrog, then you're out of out of the business and you cannot hold up. You can, for example, check out what Kodak did with the with the digital cameras. That's a famous example. And the, their problem was that everything they calculated was based on analog cameras and these old black film rolls. So they said, we exactly know how to invest and this digital camera will never work. Um, so they missed it at first point, then they then they came back into the market were the biggest uh, digital camera seller in the US. And then uh, another blow came, basically um, cameras in smartphones and cell phones, which was not, not anticipated at all. And which was difficult to predict, uh, to be honest. But uh, as you can see, so the, the the product, the main product was doing a picture. And they thought their product is a, either a film camera or a film roll. And that that's something that we miss if we focus too much on the product. And we then we focus on my my, pro, my uh, what I sell is a camera. No, what they were selling was the opportunity to make a photo. And that's if you think ROI, you miss it sometimes. So that's risk. Okay. Um, so I want to uh, uh, switch uh, a little bit. So uh, you are known for, I mean, you are the best chief futurist at SAP. You're known for your work on vision or envisioning the future, right? So I have to pose you an esoteric kind of question, right? So uh, can we think the future or will it just happen no matter what? So what's your view? Yeah, that's an esoteric question. Yes, so um, people always people came up with different answers. So it's everything from the future is completely open, and you can think it to its fate. So it's basically set up and somewhere by by somebody. Um, personally, I think for 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 thinking creatively, you have uh, to think that it's not fate, that it's not set, so that you can think it. But it's not the future, but more futures. So you have to come up with scenarios. It doesn't help if you have just one in mind because we are not sure if it moves into that direction or that direction. It's the same with your personal life. I mean, we, we all know it, you know, we get married and we forget to plan the future that we get divorced. And that's that's the same. In, in principle, you can think it, but we usually do not do it because we don't like it. We like black and white and we like easy answers. And uh, we don't like these open futures and to hold multiple worldviews in our head because uh, that's really energy consuming and it's sometimes it's irritating if you think um, two completely different futures in the same time, like um, 
you know, that are contradictory, contradictory and uh, but that's how it is. We, we don't know yet. We know the, 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 the path ahead and it may move to the left or to the right. And we have to stay open as long as we can and to think the implications. That's basically the game. So yes, we can think part of it or create it or design it. If we will land in that future is a different matter. Yeah, so I wanted to uh, touch on one point that uh, you kind of make very clear from your articles, but I wanted the audience to hear basically from you. So one of the issues we deal quite often, so yes, it's uncomfortable to deal with a variety of potential futures. So people kind of embrace or cling to this notion of one future, one official future, the official version of the future, the future we hope or we're so sure is going to happen and then it, and it doesn't, right? So you actually advocate uh, the adoption of multiple worldviews. Can you explain to us a little bit of your thought process so what goes behind your recommendation? So world, multiple mm -hmm. world's bills versus holding one, quote, official future. Basically, it's easy. It's emotionally tricky, uh, but basically it's easy. It's based on, on, on the idea that we actually do not know. So we do not know how the future will unfold. And, and um, we do not know if our worldview is correct. So we have one. And sometimes it's well hidden in our subconscious even, so we are not aware of it. So if um, if you have the worldview of, of that everything should be um, sustainable, then of course your future will look very sustainable or very clean or very green or whatever. Um, but that's only one worldview. You could come up with different ones. Or if you like technology, then your future will, will look very much technology-minded. The... The basic fact is that that whatever we we want to have or what we like to have in the future is is not necessary necessarily what how it will turn out. So I found that leaving that open and holding many assumptions in parallel in my head makes me better thinking. So open-minded. Of course, not many people follow because this sometimes gets gets stressy because you realize oh. Them, I think that that if if you're not aware that you think that um, economy and democracy are comp the, the way that we run our economies, you you usually think in the West our way of capitalism and democracy is tightly linked and cannot be broken. That's an assumption. That's a worldview. I could have another one, where I would say, okay, the same capitalist um, um, system works wonderfully with dictatorships, which it did basically in the past. So I can hold two completely different worldviews in my mind, and they're neither wrong or right. They can both happen. I don't know where I am. But if I completely um, defocus on one, or if I completely omit to think in one direction, I may, may make a serious mistake. So I found it interesting to, to leave that open as long as I can. Um, and it gives you a hint of where you, where you, your emotions are, what you learned, how how you got influenced by school, by parents, by people you met, by universities, by by all that thinking. And it's just thinking; it's giving you a direction, but it may not be the direction of the future. And it's again this path dependency. We have the same in our thinking. We we learned somewhere our thinking, and this frames our thinking a little bit in in certain directions. And to be open is is a really help, but it's as I said, it's not an easy. Emotionally, it's usually not easy, and you have to to uh, to learn it. And and most um, people do not like it, uh, to be honest. 
Understood. So for the last part of our conversation, I'm going to bring Martin back in. So yes. Martin, uh, uh, hi again. Uh, I'm going to start. So Kai, I'm going to address the question to you. Actually, the question is the same for both of you. It's it's a dialogue and a roundtable. But uh, thinking uh, about the future, so uh, Kai, uh, what are you most excited about the future? To move into it, actually, uh, to, to, to see how what I thought and then find out what it actually turned out to be. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious. I mean, kind of have lots of ideas and um, I'm really curious what, what will really come out of it. Like uh, uh, Martin mentioned a little bit earlier about robotics, about how, how, how far do we go into the direction of our robotics, artificial intelligence? How far do we go into the direction of genetically engineering everything? And how will the, the human race survive it? As we know it. <laughs> oh, we don't know if we, if we could even, you know, put an end to, to the human race just by accident. But uh, let's see. So, Martin, what are you, you know, most excited about the future? So, Kai, first of all, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Kai, uh, first of all, I agree with everything you said. So it was very, very good to, to listen to the conversation. Uh, what I'm looking for, and that goes back to what you mentioned about the scenarios and keeping in mind, uh, is essentially the parts that don't have a, it will happen or will not happen, but a complete change if of the environment. So the metaverse would be one. And I think it's, it's not a, will it happen or won't? But to what degree, who will be the players? How does it come together? Does AR, VR, how does it play together? What is the societal effect? What are the political ramifications and so on? And there are two more things that I think could have a similar effect. So materials by design, where you essentially go a little bit of a different route and use AI and machine learning to design materials with certain properties. And you can drive that potentially, in theory, much further, and that would give you obviously uh, pathways for essentially everything, construction, robotics, uh, you name it. And then the what I'm very intrigued about also from the intelligence <laughs> foresight information gathering point of view is uh, satellites and drone information. Because what you have to think about is uh, today a class project could send up a little cube satellite to gather information that 20 years ago would have been US military and maybe two other states. And suddenly you get all this information, it could really change the way we develop business models and so on. So with uh, Kai, it's about how many scenarios are out there, the more, the more exciting, the more challenging too, obviously too. Well, I uh, have to ask um, the flip question. So, uh, now, what keeps you guys up at night? And uh, I want to address uh, a few pointed questions specifically because you bring a European perspective. So here in the US, people are certainly very worried about, you know, are we going to go into another recession or, you know, the great resignation term turns into a great recession. But here we look into the issue between uh, Belarus and Poland. So a nation state close to you know, a NATO partner and all the crisis, so um, crisis is still evolving. Uh, we we certainly are worried about this. So, what kind of issues uh, worry both of you about the future? 
Yeah, that's start, a, yeah, yeah, I will start. Actually, I wanted to buy some thinking time, but okay, let's start. Um, I, th I think, uh, <laughs> so what keeps me up? I think uh, mostly how, how we as humans react. I think uh, personally that's, that's um, the, the time of the classical industrialization is, is over. So we're at the end phase of classical industrialization, but we don't have a clue where to move to. And what we really keeps me up is how to create, um, as I said, as I phrase it, a global consciousness so that we can really um, do everything together, like like balancing balancing the rainforest with some other, you know, not 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 deforestation, not not you know, how do you balance everything? Our uh, uh, our need for uh, for energy with with, um, with 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 the costs, but the costs, I mean, more the costs of, from from the side of the planet. So basically, it's a planetary game, but we are still not in. We are in the opposite, and um, that's the first thing. So basically, global consciousness, and the second one is a is a comeback of of nationalism, and of uh, things that I thought are have been in the past, and um, I see some movements that that are really not where I thought. Oh, I would never see them again. Um, so I'm now in it, and I don't know. Yeah, that that keeps me up. How to, how to actually get get people something to do something really good for, for for as a change, and to cope with with all the problems that we have, but really cope, not just try a little bit here and there, but really get to the source of the problems. And most of the times we don't get to the source of the problems, but we try to fix some, try to try to fix some some things, like uh, as you as you mentioned, like some immigration problems. But the sources are different than the people that try to come over here. Well, maybe a German-specific kind of question. So Angela Merkel was very well known for her Ostpolitik, right? So always looking east and finding ways to manage all of that. And now we have a, a transition into a new government. So you think, uh, from your perspective, will the new government pay the same kind of attention? Or will it be focusing elsewhere? Hmm. I, I don't predict too many changes, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> that, that's the problem. That's the problem. Because I think we have to change a lot. Um, because we missed some some of the things. Um, I don't I don't see Germany as prepared to get into the future as 20 years ago. We lost our edge on technology. We lost our edge on innovation, on simply building things like airports or whatever. You know, we lost on efficiency. Um, we are not as curious and free thinking as we have been. Um, and uh, from a politics standpoint, I think we are we are we, we are not we are not engaged in world politics. We don't have a plan. It it looks like we don't have a good plan, and uh, that makes me makes me a little bit uneasier. Hmm. So again, specifically about Germany. So Germany was well known for Energiewende, right? So at that time. Uh, that you know, Germany said we will not use uh, nuclear energy anymore, uh, and people said, "Well, you know, the cost of energy I think in Germany was higher than anybody else in Europe." But at the same token, they invested a lot into you know solar, into wind. So, mm -hmm. uh, in foresight, looking looking backwards, do you think that was good investment, or you feel that you know was a waste of money? No, I think the investment was okay. Just what we made out of it is not okay. I think it's it's a it, it's rushing into it and then giving the wrong incentives doesn't work. And at the very end, we were not very were not calculating um, open-minded or or uh, 
it's it's if you look now into it, it's that uh, solar and wind energy is um, not used as much as it could, and it won't, and it, it wouldn't be enough to to uh, for, for for what we need in energy. Uh, so in there would have been we would have needed a plan B, like to come up with with additional green ways of energy, and we never invested in it, and uh, it's it's um. But I mean, if you if you look into it, it's it's a classical it's a it's a classical problem. I mean, we we used more CO two in the last last ten years, so so our hunger for energy actually rose, not not, and and that's the problem. So we we are not we are not calculating it open minded. If you look into it, then we maybe would find some other solutions. But for now, it's more like oh, we have to save, we have to save. But actually, it's the opposite. We are using more and more energy. Um, so obviously it doesn't work. That's the path dependency. So we set up a path and we follow it, although it doesn't work like it like like it th was thought uh, in the past. So actually, a uh, good comment, uh, Dr. Aslam saying, you know, thank you very much. Fascinating discussion. Variety of examples touching both company specific and personal lives. So lots of food for thought. Kai, are you gonna be writing another book soon, or should I be? Watching for another book? What are you? What are you writing? <laughs> yeah, actually, I was was uh, thinking about writing a book about divination because that's what we all do, and how to deal with it. Um, maybe I will do it. Um, now the next, uh, I'm writing now um, smaller smaller articles on the f the future of uh, journalism and media. That's one of things because I think it's crucial. Martin, you meant, mentioned that informa gathering information is getting very tricky. And one of the problems is that um, if if you read the the national press here in Germany, if you read what they write about Russia and the U.S., and you read then Russian press or American press, you figure figure out very fast that that it's not comparable. So I, I it's it's biased. So the biases are getting stronger and stronger, or more. That's tricky for us. So that's one part. Another another one is the the future of uh, biotechnology industry, because I have a background in it. And I uh, can can basically try to understand what they're up to, and this is one of the uh, one of the technologies that's that I'm I'm reading into it. Um, there's more to it than pharma, so to say. The, the potential is huge, and the interest the more interesting parts are not. So I I actually not much, very much interested in vaccinations. I'm more interested in in how can we um, um, in using bacteria to to to, to um, to clean soil, for example, how to to come up with plants that live in certain conditions. That's for me, for the future of mankind, much more interesting. Okay, so let me turn to Martin. So, what keeps you awake at night? Well, Kai implanted a couple of new nightmares into my brain. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I absolutely agree, and I also want to jump in because the path dependency. Uh, I really like this, and it's always difficult to. So I'm digressing a little bit um, to look backwards and say, was that right? And I think the Energiewende was right. Uh, there, there is one thing with energy, agriculture, with a lot of big industries. It's a tanker. It moves, and it takes a long time to make changes. Same with infrastructure. Internet was easier, so to speak, although it took decades because um, there was nothing else there. If you want to redesign mm -hmm. uh, the, the street roads and what I view, you first need to get rid of the old infrastructure. So that becomes a really um, 
challenging endeavor. Um, I also would agree with biotechnology that actually is a little bit related to the materials by design in a mm -hmm. in a living living way. Uh, the potential for use case is massive. Uh, I think there are a lot of dangers too, for obvious reasons. Once you um, use the biotechnology, I think two areas that I want to highlight. One is the obvious one, perhaps with a little bit of a twist is climate change and i am actually not talking about the regular change we usually talk about this area is getting hotter there are a little bit more fires here a little bit more flooding there and they will continue over time because i think we're able to adjust to that so we will understand over time okay so if the, the sea rises like this we need higher walls what have you but they're threshold events and and they're cascading events and i think this is what we're really not prepared for we have an understanding about how uh, they use the the cone of uncertainty, and we always think it's a straight line, and in those straight lines we can kind of think. But if you have certain jumps, which are threshold, like the stopping of the Pacific conveyor belt, that would suddenly catapult us into an area where we're really not prepared at all, because we don't even understand what would happen. Uh, and another area that I am very concerned about is the move, particularly now with the development of the industrial Internet of Things, the Internet of Things, the metaverse, all the connectivity, a move from simple hacking and ransomware to killware. Uh, and I think we've already seen a couple of examples like this, this uh, spring in Florida where they changed the ingredients in a water treatment plant, and it actually would have led to uh, becoming poisonous water. And we don't really know why that happened, so there might be true attack reasons. Uh, I am afraid that there might be entertainment reasons, that some people just say, hey, look what, I got access, let's do something, and then later on you realize what you've done. Uh, and, and simple accidents, where somebody does something, for instance, ransomware at a hospital, because I want to extract some money. But now, instead of just shutting down the database, I also shut down the entire uh, surgery equipment and medical equipment, and people die. And it might not have been my intention, but with the increasing connectivity, you get an increasing danger of what might have happened to actual physical life and, and environmental damage. So this is something I'm, I'm thinking about how, how this might play out in the future, because we can't stop those attacks. And we can't. We haven't stopped data leaks, for instance. Maybe we can't anymore. So I want to ask you both another kind of a very German-specific kind of question. And as an economist, is 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 an economic angle in there. So there is a very interesting social experiment going on in Heidelberg. It's I think one of the most beautiful cities in in Germany. After Freiburg, I like Freiburg best. Oh, I, I guess someone's going to say Nuremberg, Nuremberg is, is better. And someone is going to say, well, Würzburg is nicer. <laughs> but, but, but Heidelberg. So Heidelberg is in, in the control of the Greens, the Green Party. And uh, now uh, they ban completely cars out of the entire city center. Right? And then there's a big debate in Germany uh, specifically about that. So on one hand, you are giving back the city to people, right? So more bicycles, uh, you know, uh, more pedestrian mm -hmm. areas. On the other hand, they say, well, uh, Germany is one, is one of the largest uh, sellers of cars in the whole world. And <laughs> basically banning cars out of, out of a city. What if the rest of the world decides to ban cars? So would that be good for Germany 
or is that bad for Germany or what's the difference? The, yeah, I mean, first of all, Heidelberg is not the biggest city. So the, the center of that city is, is really small compared to other cities. You don't have a high rate of in, in industry there. So basically, banning cars out of it uh, is in favor of the tourism you have there. So it, it, it's beneficial, I think. It's a, I think in principle, it's a good idea. If as long as you can balance the needs for mobility and uh, you can balance it out if you offer a certain, uh, so if you give certain offers, so so more uh, free roaming electrical vehicles where you could hop on and off, for example, um, without, you know, the, this, this burden of always buying a ticket and, and knowing where the line is going. We, we could have done it earlier, I think. And uh, this is one of the, if, if you if you think of cities different, um, then then it for sure will work out. It has a certain certain appeal to it. It feels like um, getting back the real feeling of a of a middle age city, uh, which has a lot of charm. Um, and I I like the experiment. Uh, as I said, um, it, it's uh, Frankfurt tried tried to close some streets as well. It never worked because they're so dependent on mobility. On people moving in that it won't work but maybe in some cities it works we, we don't have to you know the, the we germans are as on that on on that side we're a little bit silly you know we, we try to to uh, to apply the same rule for everything usually <laughs> so if you stay away from it if you think okay this works for heidelberg and maybe it works for würzburg i don't I'm, i don't think it will work for nuremberg for example um it, but it could work for freiburg as well uh, it should work for Stuttgart because Stuttgart is completely clogged with with traffic. But if you look into it, it might be uh, we might learn from it. Usually, the learnings of that experiment are more interesting than the experiment per se. And I like the, especially I like that that we a little bit forgot to to experiment, have fun experimenting, and then then going on with the results and and learn from it. It's it's um, that's something we have to relearn. I think. Overall, not only in Germany. So, how about you, Martin? What do you think about the social experiment? Do you, do you have a perspective there? So, so I think this is super interesting because it comes back to the ROI discussion. So, mm -hmm. uh, changing the urban environments, it might have uh, this effect that, as a common factor, you're scared because it might reduce the needs for individual transportation. Uh, and I think, again, this is the short-term ROI. What, what is the alternative? And the alternative could be a complete collapse and actually uh, a, a complete um, loss of any value that car manufacturers can bring to the mobility concept. Because there are a lot of, uh, as Kai mentioned, uh, like individual, small, uh, hop on and off uh, cars and uh, electric cars or completely different new underground systems. We, we can think about a lot. Urban environments change in multiple ways. And there are a lot of experiments. So in France, they're shutting down or reducing the major thoroughfares. You have the 20-minute neighborhoods where essentially the idea is everything you have is in, inside 20 minutes, uh, either with public transportation and some others think that you can walk it. So it's, it's essentially kind of having a lot of small centers. Think about it, the, the importance for the centers uh, historically is this is where you pack all the supermarkets and Kaufhäusers or the department stores and everybody goes there with the car, loads the stuff in and drives out. 
And we have changed it a little bit with like uh, pedestrian zones. But in general, that's still the concept. Well, with all the online um, mm -hmm. situation, the online e-commerce, you, you not only have the opportunity to change what is at the center, it essentially becomes a need to rethink what the center will be. Well, perhaps the center now is a big park and areas that you would not have thought about that it's worthwhile to have that at the center. Well, per definition, if that happens, the entire mobility around it changes. So uh, I'm completely with Kai with the experiments and what works for Heidelberg might not work for Nuremberg or for New York. San Francisco has a lot of parklets, so what, what the parking areas were are now extensions of the restaurants, which happened because of the pandemic. But people seem to like it. It's less driving, less parking, but instead another opportunity to have a coffee with a friend. Uh, I think a lot is going on, and I think the pandemic, in a way, that's one of the few positive developments that the pandemic gave us, that we're rethinking how we live in an urban environment and interact. Yeah, especially we lost all the excuses of what we cannot change. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. Suddenly, a lot of things work. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I do have a different kind of question from the audience. So uh, the, the COP conference in Glasgow, right? So uh, especially here, the discussion has become very politicized, uh, right? So whether you, you believe depends on uh, which uh, political party you affiliate or subscribe to. But uh, as futurists, there's there's a lot of concern from the audience that, you know, uh, all that they're doing in Glasgow is blowing hot air. They really don't mean it. Uh, probably President Clinton here said the same things, and Helmut Schmidt said the same things like 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and they're just talking, but there's no action. So what can we, as people who work in foresight and futurism, do or do differently to raise that kind of awareness so that you know we have a more productive, uh, more objective discussions, should I say? What do you guys think? Yeah, you're right. Um, the, the the discussion is completely overheated, and uh, whatever you do, and if you try to 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 uh, be in an open discourse, it's getting very tricky these days. What if if you take the the big topics of of today, how to 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 treat the pandemic, how to um, come up with more sustainable living, uh, mobility concepts, whatever. It's usually black and white, and um, we gave a little, we gave up on on discourse. We don't discuss really anymore so it's more an opinion-based society so i have an opinion and i don't mind what kind of opinion you have you have the wrong one if you do not choose my opinion and that's of course very tricky uh, that that's dangerous i think very very dangerous we see that not only in in the political system of the states we saw that with the brexit we see it in germany here as well in the political discussions and even if i say so you can try to discuss it with some people they would oppose it so it's <laughs> considered to be an opinion as well but i think what we can learn is um to go beyond to really say okay think in a scenario Th think in different scenarios think that everything around sustainability is a political camouflage and they don't want to move because they don't have an idea how to develop the system to something better it's just um greenwashing just take this scenario and and take another one they make it they they take it serious they want really to change something and then just look what happens i mean the i remember very well a club of rome the end of growth 1970s i think so what have we done in between the last 20 years in around sustainability 
I understand if some people say, well, they, they're flying in, they're talking, talking, not much happens. Yes, on the on the big level, we don't do enough because that's my theory. We don't have an idea of how to get out, out of out of that economical system that creates the problem. And it's not just the US, it's China, it's every everybody. And um, so the, the thinking should be, this is the problem. Where is the real problem? It's not of having no ideas of, of improving sustainability. That's not true. We know what to do. We know how to come up with a better agriculture. That's easy. We just, we just don't get there because there are some path dependencies. So if we get open and we really discuss the path dependency, for example, in Germany, agriculture is an export factor. They export a lot of food, processed food. So it, it's not what you think agriculture is. And if you really open and you say, oh, this is reality, this is how we make money, this is how the system runs, then you can decide how to change it. Um, but this means really to be open, to, to really confront yourself with the reality. And we know that in many, many cases, as Martin rightfully pointed out, finding re the reality is not that easy anymore. So what do you think, Martin? What can we do different as foresight practitioners, as futurists to raise awareness? I will actually um, pick up a couple of the arguments that Kai had. Um, so first of all, I think it's positive that we're talking about it. Just, you know, to put that aside. So it has become a real topic. Uh, but I absolutely agree with the path dependency. I actually think it's something now I will uh, take away and look even more into it. Uh, it's as simple as that. If you want to really become sustainable, as a politician, you will step on too many toes. You know, mm -hmm. it will be left and right. Agriculture, I mean, some people said agriculture is essentially the transformation of fossil energy into food. Um, so mobility, what have you, coal industry, all the, you know, heavy industries, and so on. So uh, I think what can we do as a foresight practitioner? There's one thing um, that the media is doing, uh, and I think it's kind of helpful to a certain degree, it's to give us nightmare scenarios. Uh, it's usually something to, yeah. okay, per perhaps there is a wall somewhere. The problem is, too, then we end up with extreme reactions, and this is what Kai said. In the past, I, I have a feeling when, when I grew up, it was more like we would have a discussion, and I would throw out some stuff in the expectation that Kai would say, whoa, 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 wait, take this aspect. And I would leave in the evening and say, you know, that was enriching. I actually now have a little bit more building blocks that I can put in my argument. And it has become more this, uh, no, wait, wait, I have an opinion, your opinion is wrong. So back and forth. Therefore, the nightmare scenario has an embedded danger that I'm just going like, you know what? Climate change is not happening. This is not because of coal. And that's my opinion, and I shut it down. So I think what a foresight practitioner also has to do is to provide us with scenarios that actually show that there can be a very positive growth scenario if you want to stick to growth. And I think a lot of people want to stick to it. I'm not convinced that's the way to go, but perhaps it needs for PR reasons. You need to bring that in uh, to sketch pathways to a future where we can say, oh, okay, so this is the nightmare we want to avoid. But look, there's actually that there are some green meadows and uh, ways to 
have a future for all the different industries if, for instance, perhaps the car manufacturing industry moves from individual more to public or, you know, group transportation and agriculture changes to more sustainable uh, approaches. So the positive aspect, bringing that in and showing some scenarios that could uh, give us an idea how to approach the future. Well, uh, I really don't know how to thank you both. Uh for you know taking so much time of your you know busy schedules to be here and to talk i actually have 19 other questions that i received that is unfair for me to uh, throw you and explain the metaverse in, in just two minutes or less so i will have to save them uh for another occasion and i hope uh, uh both of you uh, can come back game. every time <laughs> yes and, and talk to people they are really excited excited i got comments like fabulous wonderful uh thank you so much and, and i knew this uh, would be a fun show because uh, i read what you write uh I, I think you add a lot of value i mean it's you guys in the category of visionaries you actually you know a step above you're still dealing with uh, processes and things, but you can help people envision way out of situations or help people see and bring hope, hope to the debate. Often we feel a sense of hopelessness or we we, we fall into hopelessness and you are the feel the brave who uh, charge the windmill, like uh, <laughs> I should say, and uh, uh, bring us, no, no, there's, there's a tomorrow and there's a day after that and there's, you know, uh, other things uh, to think about. So uh, again, uh, thank you so very much for your being uh, here with me and uh, and the others. Thank you, Sean. Viel mas or thank you, viel mas for your rede. Vielen Dank. Vielen Dank. Thank you so much. I enjoyed thank it you. massively. Okay. Me too. So, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we'll uh, go back to uh, the program and I'm going to go back to the agenda. Again, thank you so very much for uh Staying with us uh, for so long, uh, it you know I got your 19. Now there's one more question. I guess a couple more questions for both Martin and Kai. We'll be talking about it. We'll be formatting it in a way that uh, we can take uh, more of your questions. We're uh, coming so back. You, you. I hope so. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll hold you. I hold you to that. Okay. Uh, uh, we will be welcoming them back again uh, to continue the discussion. So I want to tell a little bit about the upcoming events. Uh, so uh, we heard from the French-speaking friends. Uh, today we had the German-speaking friends. And next time is the British invasion. The British are coming. So I have uh, Professor Dover and Arthur Weiss. Uh, oh. they're, they're fantastic. And uh, Rob Dover is a specialist on espionage. So we're going to talk about uh, state actors and what state actors are doing or, or they shouldn't be doing, but certainly we'll be uh, talking a lot more about that. Uh, following this, we are going to have a different talk. So we're going to specialize on market research, uh, how market research has changed in, in response to the pandemic, uh, what's the future of market research, where market research is going. And Fouad Benyub has a book out, so I promise him. He said, oh, we'll come back just to talk about the book. Because uh, people who write books, I could sit with them and talk for hours. So we'll bring Fouad back to talk about his book. He has some fantastic ideas. And he will help you think through how to set up your competitive intelligence practice from scratch, from the get-go. Uh, on the third, so we have friends from ASU, Jamie Birds and Karen Walker. 
they're going to be talking a lot about you know the partners uh, the partnership between corporations and universities how to make that thing work uh dr azia slam from palo alto networks will be offering the corporate perspective so we will see how the universities see it working or how the universities see it improving the partnership and then we're going to ask the corporations the same kinds of questions so how do you derive value out of your partnership with universities um, what are the pitfalls? Uh, how do you see it improving? Uh, we will continue with uh, two major topics. Please continue sending your thoughts and your ideas and your questions and who would you like to hear. But I will continue on the same issues of metaverse and sustainability. Uh, both are uh, very important topics. So we'll be bringing them back. And luckily, Joyce was in the call with us today. So uh, she had lots of thoughts. In her own right, she's also a futurist, and she has a fantastic uh, newsletter, uh, one that I enjoy reading um, all the time. Uh, Markets and Markets is bringing a roundtable with uh, CEOs, so they're going to be targeting several large companies and the challenges they face. So I thought, hmm, that should be interesting talking as they release uh, more information. We'll hear more. And... Both myself and all of my guests here participate on the ICI events. ICI is lining up fantastic things for early 2022. So uh, wait and, and, and you shall see. And today is Thursday. Heute ist Donnerstag. Nicht wahr? Und nicht Freitag. Yeah? So we promised we would have a show on Thursday because people said, oh, no, you are conflicting with... Uh, uh, our, our, our issues on the Friday evening. I said, no problem. We'll, we'll come up with a show uh, uh, that is specific, uh, that is compliant with uh, Friday evening or Friday after sundown. Uh, we got lots of people saying how wonderful and how fabulous those those two guys are. Uh, Michael said, thank you so much for time and insights. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, lots of people are very thankful. I, I really and sincerely hope that uh, uh, you guys can come back and talk to us uh, sometime soon. Uh, I'm going to uh, move uh, to close the show. So once again, uh, first of all, I want to thank you guys, the audience, for making this a reality, for being here, for interacting. You know, if I, I can talk with uh, Martin and Kai for hours, but I, I love that you are in and you're participating, you have your concerns and your thoughts and your comments and your questions. And that is really why we're here, right? So uh, foresight practitioners, uh, professionals, we want to talk more. We want to get people involved. We want to hear your perspectives as well as uh, share what we think. We want to make a better world, right? Please uh, continue the discussion. You can hit us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. So uh, as soon as I hang up, uh, it's going to take just a couple of hours, but they will upload this video and we'll continue the discussion there. So please go check our uh, YouTube channel and uh, I, will, if I will continue to work on your questions and your comments. Uh, I will certainly send them to Martin and to Kai. They will respond. I will post back. And yes, I already asked them three times and they said, yes, they are coming back. So I will, I will hold them uh, uh, to the commitment. Again, uh, can't thank you both, uh, my guests, uh, enough uh, for taking the time. I know you are extremely busy. You work for the largest corporations in the world, and yet uh, there you are. You're taking the time uh, to speak with the audience and to speak with me again. Thank you so very much. Thank you guys for uh, hanging out with us. And in closing, I'm going to leave you with our institutional message. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you soon.